Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the dual tantrums by David Davis and Boris Johnson and a year on from that delightful general election. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor, Whitehall editor James Blitz, editorial director Robert Shrimsley, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And as ever, if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. It was a week of high drama with Brexit, which not much changed. The question of the government's backstop solution to the Irish border conundrum came to a head with David Davis staking out a clear position and threatening to resign. And then he gave in. We also had some leaked recordings from Boris Johnson, who was secretly recorded with some choice comments about the state of Brexit and the Treasury, urging a room for Thatcherites to take the fight to the enemy within. But after all that, Theresa May is still standing and has actually got her way and her Brexit vision is still on track, sort of. George Parker, let's begin with the David Davis roller coaster that was Thursday. What a delightful day that was for us to all to follow. So the Brexit Secretary, the man who is notionally in charge of all these negotiations, came to a head with his disagreements with the Prime Minister that on this question of how to solve the Irish border, keeping a soft border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, Theresa May's solution, he felt was giving too much away. And he said it's got to have a date about when this backstop is going to end. But then it all gave away. So can you as simply as possible explain what the backstop is about and where the arguments lay between Mr Davis and the Prime Minister? Well, we're very grateful to David Davis for illuminating this story with some histrionics and political drama on Thursday. It's the kind of day we live for at Westminster where we have frantic meetings going on behind closed doors, threats of resignations and all the rest of it. All bringing to a head, really, as you say, this debate over what appears to be a fairly dry subject, the Irish backstop plan, but one which is absolutely essential when it comes to the future shape of Brexit. This is the backstop provision which guarantees there won't be a hard border in Ireland if all else fails. And I've been tracking the Brexit debate in detail quite a lot recently. There's a danger that all else could fail and that the backstop actually then becomes the settled position at least well into the next decade. So that's what was at stake. David Davis said, we can't have this as an open-ended agreement. There has to be an end date. But there was a problem with that, of course, because the European Commission and the Irish government have rightly said, we want to guarantee ad infinitum that there won't be a hard border in Ireland, not with some sort of end date on it. David Davis went into battle on this slightly shaky ground. And in the end, Theresa May faced him down. She basically said there won't be an end date in this document. The European Union won't accept it. The Irish government won't accept it. And she gave him the most modest of fig leaf to allow him not to resign, where she basically said, oh, well, we expect this all to end in December 2021. Well, expect is not a term which is legally enforceable in international treaty law, I think. So, James Blitz, when this document came out about what's now called the Temporary Customs Partnership, it had in this language George reference, which mentions December 2021 as the point at which they expect this backstop 
if it's ever used, to come to an end. But again, for David Davis, that seemed to have satisfied him. But I'm quite surprised it did actually, because it's not binding at all. And you can see it's one of those things, as soon as it comes anywhere near Brussels, it'll just disappear. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the great question in all this is why David Davis, having huffed and puffed and threatened to resign, didn't actually resign. Because as George says, it's very hard to see in this plan for the temporary customs arrangement what he has got. The word expectation is far too loose. Much of the detail of the document is really the kind of thing that the hard Brexiters, Brexiters generally fear, which is that the UK during this backstop would be under the um, remit of the ECJ to quite a considerable extent in areas like VAT, that we would find it very difficult to do trade deals because we would not be able to set any differential tariff different from that of the EU. So that is difficult. I mean, the questions arise as to whether there is complete unity in among the Brexiters behind this position. I think there is a lot of discussion about whether the position taken by David Davis and then the even more extreme position taken by Boris Johnson is backed, say, by Michael Gove. There is some discussion about whether he has accepted that we are in the end going to have a Hotel California situation in which we basically leave the EU, but we don't fully check out. And I think that is a question which we need to look at in the next few days and weeks. But the overall situation, generally speaking, is, as George has said in the past, that Mrs. May has faced down the Brexiters repeatedly and has got her way towards moving us towards a softer Brexit. And there she is winning her way. I think this is the key lesson for me of this week, George, is that the hardline Brexiters, the infamous European Research Group of Conservative MPs, they talk a big game, threats of coming for the Prime Minister, leadership challenge, bringing her down, bringing the government down. But this week, they didn't do any of it. This was a moment where you could honestly say Brexit is being softened. And you can see, as James described, this Hotel California situation, which is where we leave the EU, but we're still in the orbit, we're still bound by the rules, and you haven't got that crucial notion of sovereignty. If you were a hardline Brexiter, you could honestly say, this is the moment that things have really started to go against you. But they didn't do anything about it. About it. And the lesson for Theresa May in Downing Street now is we face them down and we always win. So if this is one compromise this week, there's going to be more to come in the future. Absolutely. And uh, I was speaking to people in the Treasury who were purring with delight at the fact that the Theresa May had faced down David Davis, people in the heart of the Cabinet Office who were dealing with the Brexit negotiation, saying she's come up with a plan which can actually be negotiated in Brussels. So they're delighted with the fact that she stood her ground. And as you say, I mean, there's a growing view among the top of the Tory party, the round Theresa May around the Treasury, that the Brexiteers are effectively all mouth and no trousers, basically, and that they aren't prepared to do what they often threaten to do. But the problem they have, as I've said before, is they only really have one option, which is a nuclear option. They don't have any gradation of escalation of their hostility towards Theresa May. They can get the numbers to trigger a motion of no confidence against Theresa May. They probably don't have the numbers to actually topple her. And they are fearful of that if they try to remove Theresa May, then the whole Brexit project could be enveloped in the ensuing chaos of a Tory leadership contest. That is their calculation, ultimately, is that, look, do we accept this kind of Brexit, James, which is maybe not the ideal dream Brexit they want, or do they risk having no Brexit at all? And I think Peter Bone, who's a, one of the paleo-sceptics, who's been a long-term Brexit, said on Newsnight last night, I don't care anymore, I just want to get out. And I feel like that's quite indicative of a lot of people who have those feelings. Yes, that is right. I think among hard Brexit Exeters, there has been a view for some time that perhaps they better just not rock the boat too much, get out, and then they can sort things out later. 
I think something we need to say, however, because we're giving the impression here that things are moving towards an orderly soft Brexit, is that there are still a number of big challenges ahead. One of the big challenges is whether the European Union is going to accept this idea of an all-UK backstop as has been presented in the temporary customs arrangement this week. They didn't really like that. The preference of Barnier has always been for a Northern Ireland-only backstop, if you like, where you just keep Northern Ireland in the customs union and potentially in the single market. But their worry is that if you have the UK inside effectively a customs union and with a substantial presence inside the single market as well for an unlimited period you are effectively giving a giant cherry in cherry picking to the brits and that is something where we need to see whether the europeans are going to go show understanding for the position that the uk is in i think the response to michelle barnier's position is that that is sort of unacceptable because it's essentially adding a line between the trading arrangements within the united kingdom and theresa may said in a letter to MPs this week, no Prime Minister could accept that. And it's, you know, you can debate Northern Ireland has special status on some areas, but on this crucial one, she certainly seems to think that that's just a no-go. That's correct. There's certainly not going to be a border down the Irish Sea. I think over time, assuming that things go reasonably well at the June summit and the backstop begins to be properly discussed, the big question is going to be, If the UK is tied to a customs union, if it's also substantially aligned in terms of single market regulations, and that then gives you a very privileged position as the UK, what do you need to give on free movement, on immigration? Can you really go forward as a UK in this kind of arrangement without accepting the principle of free movement. And I do think that is potentially where the argy-bargy is going to be. Now, the other thing we had this week, George, was Boris, who once again was picked up, saying some indiscreet comments. They were particularly acerbic this time that he was speaking to a dinner of the Conservative Way Forward Group, which is a Thatcherite campaign group founded to continue Baroness Thatcher's legacy and her policies. And in this dinner, which was not a special small dinner, quite a few people there, and the Foreign Secretary was being particularly indiscreet, talking about everything from Kim Jong-un in North Korea, to the Treasury, to everything. And he also said that there was going to be a meltdown and we need to be prepared for this. But we're in this situation with Boris now where it, it's just written off by Downing Street. Boris is Boris. If you let him get on with it. And actually, I've heard from people in Downing Street, they're not too displeased with that because it's actually sunk all this David Davis stuff off the headline <laughs> with everyone talking about Boris. Everyone knows Boris is not on board, but it's not really doing the government that much harm because he's not going to resign. She's not going to sack him. Life goes on. Yeah, it's a row which suited both sides, I think, probably. Um, you know, from Downing Street point of view, of course, you know, Boris's views are fairly well known. And seeing them in black and white, it um, makes entertaining reading. I notice it's one of the most read stories on the FT website today. People love hearing Boris sort of saying stuff like Donald Trump would make a better fist of negotiating Brexit. It's all very amusing. But um, it also, I think, suited Boris Johnson because it got out into the public domain. The fact that he is angry, he's fighting the good cause. He's trying to stop the betrayal of Brexit He's the holder of the true flame. And that does him no harm either. So I think the row suited both sides. But I think the uniting factor between the David Davis strop this week and Boris Johnson letting rip at a private dinner with Thatcherite Tories, as you were saying, they both suggest that the hard Brexiteers are losing the argument. You can always tell in the Brexit debate who's losing the argument by who's making the most noise. And it was almost a cry of despair, I thought, from Boris Johnson, just reading his remarks there, that... He accepted that things were going the wrong way, that we could end up in what James called the Hotel California scenario. And there doesn't seem to be anything much they can do about it. And I think this is the point as well, James mentioned, is that uh, 
the Brexiters are not united on what Brexit should be now. You know, we've heard reports like Michael Gove, who, again, one of the key figures in Vote Leave, the Environment Secretary, is not totally unhappy with this direction because he feels the civil service isn't ready for a clean break. The politics aren't right for a clean break. So instead, we should essentially just accept this, get a deal, get over the line and then revisit at some later point. Whereas Boris takes the view that actually that's no good because once we've left, we lose our key negotiating card which is the money will be treated as a third country and now is the time to fight for Brexit but Boris is looking quite isolated in that view you know even David Davis who's probably a bit more on the Boris and the Michael Gove side he lost that argument. Yeah I think he is looking increasingly isolated that may not do him any harm politically because if people can see that he's fighting the good fight does he really mind you know if he goes down in flames at least he will have done the right thing. I think Michael Gove is um, playing a much more sophisticated game. He basically is trying to moderate his image and trying to be a person who might be able to unite the party when Theresa May is forced from office. Appealing to um, the Remainers. Appealing to the Remainers, so as appearing as this moderate figure. But there is another thing which I think Michael Gove can hardly fail to have noticed. And I was talking to one minister this week who is almost in despair about the fact that there's a big public spending round coming up. The public services, particularly the health service, but many others, are starved of money. There's no money in the kitty. The British economy, which was the fastest growing of the G7 economies, is now one of the slowest growing of the major economies. And getting out of the EU without inflicting a significant shock on the British economy is of a priority for ministers who want money for public services and to win the next election. And finally, James, next week we've got some legislative fun coming up. The EU withdrawal bill, which is one of the crucial pieces of legislation, is coming back to the House of Commons. Now, when that bill went to the House of Lords, it was messed about with. There were all sorts of amendments tacked onto it to do with the customs union, meaningful votes and all the rest of it. And Theresa May has now got to ensure that out of these 15 or so amendments, the vast majority of them are pulled back. So there's a big whipping operation going on, making sure all MPs are going to be in Westminster on Tuesday and Wednesday to vote to get this piece through. It's a crucial piece of legislation to give legal certainty from Brexit Day. What do you think is going to happen with all those amendments? Well, if I had to make a guess, and I could be called to account over at this time next week, I think it's going to be less dramatic than people think. I think the reason for... There are 15 amendments, and they cover a wide range of issues relating to the customs union, the procedures for leaving the EU in Parliament, and so on. The bottom line is, I think what Mrs May would be able to argue to Conservative rebels is, look, I'm making significant progress on this customs backstop proposal. It is potentially the way forward for remaining in a customs union and very closely allied to the EU economically over quite a number of years. I'm coming up to a big summit where I've got to make the case for this. Don't undermine me on these issues just before I get there. Now, she does have what I think is much more important. She has said this week that they are going to bring forward the legislation on the trade and customs bills before the middle of July. And there, there is what, of all these amendments, is by far the most significant, which is an amendment placed by Ken Clark and Anna Soubry, which would keep the UK in a customs union for good. That, I think, is the key test. If Mrs May were to lose that vote, that really would be a big problem. And I think over the next few days, we need to see how things are going to develop in the run-up to that vote, rather than the ones which are in the Commons next week. I agree with all of that. I think um, there's a tacit understanding among the pro-European Tory rebels that don't make trouble on the customs union next week. You've got plenty of chance to do that later. And there is a sort of eerie sense of calm at the moment in the Tory party. We bumped into Jacob Rees-Mogg on the day of David Davis's drop and he was 
desperately trying not to get involved in the row, trying to keep things calm. The Eurosceptics desperately want to get this withdrawal bill, which is, after all, the legislative foundation of Brexit, onto the statute book. The pro-Europeans have been told things are going your way and you've got another big chance on the customs union. So I agree with James that there will be, I think, less parliamentary pyrotechnics than we might have thought. Although the one amendment I think which could be a problem still is this question about the so-called meaningful vote, the idea that Parliament will be able to direct Theresa May in the final stages of the Brexit negotiation. Not another one. That was Brenda from Bristol, who, as she said, in anticipation of last year's general election. A year ago today, Britain went off to the polls and essentially gave a big shrug. The electorate did not heartily endorse Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May, instead depriving the Tories of their majority and leaving Theresa May somewhat embarrassed. She was reliant on the DOP to form a functioning government, which, contrary to a lot of expectations, has survived for 12 months. And in that year, the government has achieved not very much on Brexit or on the domestic front. Robert Shrimsley, it's quite remarkable to think it has been a year because in some sense it feels like we're completely where we were last year, that we haven't made any big decisions on Brexit, haven't made any big decisions on the future of the country and the reasons the Conservatives did badly in that election, they haven't really addressed those either. Yes, I think as someone said during the election, nothing has changed. In one level, it is remarkable to think it's been a year. At another level, it feels like it's been several years already, several lifetimes, in fact, It's particularly astonishing that we're not that much further along on Brexit. We've had some interesting developments this week, but it is still the case that the Cabinet, instead of negotiating with the European Union, is still busy negotiating with itself over what position it should take to the European Union on Brexit. There's been a slight loosening of some of the fiscal restraints. The tax revenues are not as bad as they thought they were going to be. There's some scope to do some interesting things. But the fundamentals remain. This is a government with no majority and no money facing the naughtiest problem that any government has faced for a very long time. Do you think it's unfair, given the lack of majority, to say they should have done more? Because you can make an argument and say, well, when you're reliant on the DUP, who have been not exactly reliable partners for government, you know, they have struggled to get legislation through the House of Commons. But it depends what more you're looking for. The DUP haven't obstructed reform of the planning regulations to allow more houses to be built. The DUP didn't force the Windrush scandal on the Home Office. So actually... Most of the problems and most of the failures of this government cannot be placed at the door of the DUP. Miranda Green, when the election results came in this time last year, everyone was decrying this is it for Theresa May, she won't last and she will be gone before the summer, before the end of the year, take your pick on whichever prediction was made. But she has managed to survive and it is quite remarkable, as Robert was just saying, we've had the Windrush scandal, the ups and downs of Brexit, lost so many cabinet ministers, Amber Rudd, Damien Green, Pretty Patel, Michael Fallon, you know, the list goes up. Take take a breath as you complete the list because it's a long one. So when you look at all that together you do have to say you know it is remarkable she's still there and I think partly it's because there's no obvious successor and also partly because there's this almighty thing which is Brexit and they just don't really want to tip the balance but you've got to give Mrs May a little round of applause for just getting through all that in a year and still no obvious route for her exit. It's actually phenomenal And if you think back, it's so hard in politics to think back to other atmospheres that have now evaporated. But we spent so much time, not least around this table, talking last year before the election about can Corbyn hang on and will he stay as leader of the Labour Party? And then we've spent the period since last year's election 
saying, can Mrs May hold on? And of course, Corbyn now looks completely unassailable. But she has done so. And there's a sort of sentimental case for actually congratulating her for her bizarre old-fashioned sense of duty struggling on, because it must have been absolutely horrific the whole time. And there's even a sort of train of thought which is possible to entertain that she might pull off some sort of Brexit compromise that will make her chapter in the history books not look like the joke that it seemed this time last year. I mean, doing anything more substantial in terms of domestic politics is, as you've pointed out, risky and difficult when you don't have a proper majority. And also, of course, she is temperamentally not a risk taker. We know that. And the one risk that she did force herself to take calling the general election last year has probably confirmed her view that such risks are a bad idea. But they are trying on some things. Robert's right about the horrific, unforced error of Windrush, which is a genuine scandal. But, you know, they're trying to make a decision about Heathrow. They've had a couple of happily dull budgets under Philip Hammond's guidance at the Treasury. So, I mean, I would actually argue that they're not doing too badly. And on the NHS, you know, this idea that actually one of the key things about the Brexit referendum was this promise for more money for the NHS. If they can actually come up with some sort of settlement there, they might have solved quite a big underlying discontent as well. I don't want to put too positive a gloss on it, but I think a positive gloss is becoming more possible. Well, the reason she has survived is because she really hasn't taken that many active decisions. So if you mention budgets, for example, most of the fiscal statements we've had have been pretty neutral in terms of spending and tax rates. They've not really adjusted things. And on the big questions, she's either dodged them or fudged them to essentially try and hold her party together. And I guess that says as much about her position as the state of the Conservative Party, that David Cameron managed to lead the Conservative Party on issues like same-sex marriage, which looked very divisive, but the party actually came through it. Theresa May sort of just opting out of that as a survival strategy. Well, she has absolutely no political capital. So she's in a quite interesting position because most leaders have authority and have political capital and also the numbers in the Commons to do things. She has none of that. So almost anything she does would be as risky or thrilling as her famous kind of running through the fields of wheat because she can't really act. But actually, therefore, her task as Prime Minister has been to walk this tightrope on the Brexit question. In a way, the weakness is the strength. The reason she's survived is because she is so weak. Nobody thinks that she actually seriously will fight the next election. So they're waiting for the right moment. There is no single strong candidate to replace her. No one can agree on who the right choice is. So no one wants to make the move too early. And they also know that if you push her too hard, she might fall over. So it's the absolute weakness of her position that is keeping her going. When the election results came through, another one of the things that was said quite rapidly that was proven wrong was that Jeremy Corbyn might be prime minister before the end of the year. Robert, why do you think that didn't happen? Because obviously Mr Corbyn did put in this amazing performance that no one thought was going to happen. They got 40-odd percent in the opinion polls. And yet, for the last year, they've not made huge gains. They've sort of remained pretty much where they are, apart from the fact his personal position is unassailable, as Miranda said. Well... I've made my fair share of mistakes in predictions, but that wasn't one I made, actually. The reason he wasn't prime minister by the end of the year is because the Conservatives, while frequently self-immolating, are not entirely suicidal. And they understood what was going to happen if there was another election soon. So they made damn sure there wasn't one. They rallied round her as best they could. They did the deal with the DUP, which is possibly the only party in the country with even less desire to see Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister than the Conservatives. They stitched together a coalition. They tackled the issue. And 
that's why he's not prime minister. You know, the, the fact is, for all of the success that he had in the election, his share of the vote, the number of seats, you know, they were still quite a long way short of victory. So it wasn't a given. As you say, his position now is absolutely unassailable within the Labour Party. He's got people around him who have shown a fair degree of strategic and tactical nous in the things they're doing and not doing. So the issue for Labour now is, can we keep ourselves pushing on? Can we keep ourselves strongly in contention? Is it a one more heave strategy where we just wait for the Tories to fall over under the weight of their own contradictions? Or do we have to do more things to persuade more people to come to us? Are we prepared to tack a little bit into the centre to pull over more voters? Or, as must be the temptation certainly in the Corbyn bunker, actually we've proved everybody wrong, we can keep fighting on exactly the agenda we have, we'll pull people around. That's the fundamental battle I think that will happen within the Labour Party. And I think that tension, Miranda, has absolutely nowhere near being resolved and we saw that in the local elections we had a couple of months ago where essentially on policy terms and on targeting terms, Labour is continuing the strategy it had in last year's election and they haven't done a huge amount to reach out because my view certainly is you know, they're as far away from power now as they were in 2010 and getting those extra Westminster seats to form even a coalition or majority government is going to be very tough. And instead, they're focused very much on just hunkering down on the strategy they've got at the moment without trying to outreach any further. So it's hard to see, particularly if there's not going to be an election until 2022, how they keep that momentum going without trying to speak to other parts of the country. Well, I think that's the case. I think Robert is right to say that the team around Corbyn and indeed Corbyn himself have been getting a lot smarter and a lot better. I mean, even if you just looked at PMQs this week, Corbyn's attack was extremely effective and it brought together the Brexit chaos and the railways chaos in a punchy, perfect way. And May's weakness in terms of being a champion for her side of the house was exactly as Roberts described, sort of, you know, extraordinarily weak. So, I don't know about this question of whether they can keep the momentum going, because I think if we do wait for an election until it's actually scheduled under the Folks Term Parliaments Act, you actually might be into a situation where even if May has pulled off a decent compromise on Brexit, there's no such thing as gratitude in politics. And Brexit will still be hung round the Conservative Party's neck if there's economic pain, if there are jobs leaving, etc., And that trick that Labour pulled off in their manifesto this time last year, you know, it could work again. People really don't like not being able to get to work on the railways and the NHS needs a whole new sort of generation of funding and solutions to cater for all the problems of a modern ageing population. So there is fertile ground for Labour if they can pull off that trick of making it palatable to more moderate voters. And I do think that those of us who opine on politics consistently make the mistake and even as we say we're not going to make the mistake we make it again of forgetting just how disinterested and uninterested the public generally are in the day-to-day and week-to-week of politics their attention will be caught by something they will zone out again for a very long time they will zone back in when they need to and what have they taken away from the last year if you stop and think about it they've taken away that jeremy corbyn is now a credible candidate to be prime minister They have taken away that he did much better than they expected and they liked him more than they expected, many of them. That Theresa May and the Conservatives remain weak and divided. That Brexit is a shambles. The last opinion poll showed 73% of those who supported Brexit thought it's going wrong. So if you think about the big headlines that are cutting through, those probably are are roughly them. There may be things like Windrush. And people will zone in and out. And the Labour Party just has to 
look like it cares more and has solutions to some of the problems that really affect people. And fundamentally, the problem of do I feel I'm getting better off or worse off? Have my prospects improved? Am I going to be able to get a house? Are my kids going to get a job? And these are the things that will fundamentally decide the next election. And if the Labour Party has a more coherent and appealing message on that than the Conservatives do, well, then it's in a reasonably strong position. And, you know, the Conservatives will have been either at the head of a coalition or in a majority government since 2010 at that point. You know, know, that's generally the point at which the electorate feels it's time to give the other team a go. So that brings me on to my final question for you both, which is, are we going to see another election either this year or before 2022? And there's all sorts of reasons that things could... quite a wide envelope. (laughs) Well, (laughs) to put it accurately, will there be an election as scheduled at the moment? As Miranda said, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act means that next election is not due to happen then. But we didn't think there was going to be an election last year. Robert, do you think there's any chance there could be one either later this year, if Brexit falls apart, or if there's a new Conservative leader who comes in and is forced by the party or by whatever to go to the polls? Or will they just stay away from the electorate as long as possible to try and get into a position where things are going better than they are now? Well, I think any parliament that relies on the votes of Ulster unionists for its stability is inherently unstable. So to say there will not be an election anytime soon can say that categorically would be foolish. If I was betting on sooner versus later, I would bet on later. And for some of the reasons you've described, the Tories are absolutely determined to play it long. I wouldn't even bet on Theresa May going sooner rather than later, although I I don't believe she'll take them into the next election. So I think there's every chance there's going to be a longish parliament. You predict my next question. Amanda, what do you think about an election? I agree with everything that Robert has said. And of course, somebody taking over from May... Why would they go early with all the risks inherent to that? They would push it as far as they can to when it's scheduled. But yes, absolutely. You know, when you don't have the numbers in the House of Commons, week to week, you're on a knife edge. People assume that a change of leader, you get a new leader and they're strong and forceful and they look impressive. The new leader is going to have the same majority that Theresa May has, which is none. So actually, however great they are, they've got that fundamental problem to deal with. Well, that was my election question. This point, the new leader may come in and have their own new agenda, but they're not going to have the majority or the mandate to do any of these things. So if next election goes in 2022 or close then, as we all seem to think, who will be leading the parties? Because, as you said, Jeremy Corbyn is unassailable, but it's Corbynism as well as Mr Corbyn himself. So he personally may not be there, but his brand of politics will likely be at the ballot box next time. My view on Theresa May is that the party may try and get rid of her next summer because they're just desperate for change. And whether it's another wind rush or something else, there'll be something that the calculations for keeping her will no longer add up. What would be your sense on that, Robert? I can certainly see the arguments for a change in leader towards the middle of next year. But I can also see the arguments for playing it longer for the reasons we've set out. It also depends on who you think it's going to be and how much time they need. It's worth remembering, by the way, that the choice of the next prime minister, not just the next leader of the Conservative Party, but the next prime minister lies in the hands of around 70,000 Conservative activists. So one of the issues for the parliamentary parties. Who are we actually going to put in front of these people? Because they don't have a tremendous track record of picking the one that the public will like. So They did with David Cameron. 
they did with David Cameron. You're right, that's true. I, I'll give you that one. But they've also they made several false starts before they did that. And I think that if you look at the people who are being talked about now, you know, Michael Gove clearly still thinks he has a strong chance of becoming leader. On the other hand, he is seen to be toxic with the voters. I mean, David Cameron didn't demote his best friend for no reason. He took him out of the public light for a reason. Sajid Javid is arriving, looks interesting. Who knows? There'll be a few others who pop up and around. For a lot of them, I would suggest later is better. Yeah, I think that Gove clearly still has appetite for the top job. And it's really fun watching him trying to rebrand as the environmental champion that the UK needs right now. Is that really what the public's looking for? Who knows? Probably not. Um, Javid is really, really interesting figure. But it will take them a bit of time to prepare. And as Robert said, they'll have all the same problems. And then when you come to the Corbyn side, I think that is really interesting, actually. You know, will you end up with someone who's a genuine heir to Corbynism or will you end up with some sort of soft left compromise and will they skip a generation as well? I mean, Corbyn's getting on. John McDonnell's certainly getting on because, of course, he's as key to the whole operation as Corbyn himself. And then where the Brexit deal leaves us as well in terms of the unsolved problems of all those traditional working class areas of the country. Will they be happy going back to Labour, having flirted with conservatism because of Brexit? That's really fascinating. Well, for all our sanity, we can hope that there will not be an election this year or next year until 2022. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, James, Miranda and Robert for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. This podcast was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedham. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.